Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. My name is Sid Druin, I'm pastor here at Hope, and I'm opening God's Word with us this morning. And uh, as I do that, Matt, I said this earlier, well, that we are switching sermon series, so we've been kind of marching our way through the Gospel of Mark, slowly but surely, and uh, we're, gonna, we're taking a turn, and we're trying to kind of come alongside uh, the Hope Overflowing uh, campaign, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, generosity, and specifically, we're going to talk about uh, grace, gratitude, and generosity. That's kind of, those are the three topics that we'll kind of return to over and over and over again. And uh, in order to do that, we're going to spend sort of six weeks kind of putting some connections together, how God's grace, which we say that a lot in the church, and really what I mean by God's grace very simply is God's always unearned and usually unexpected gifts. God's always unearned and usually unexpected gifts. Um, God's grace stirs up our gratitude, and out of the overflow of our gratitude, we're generous. We're generous to those in our lives and in our world. Um, and so we see this kind of grace leads to generosity, or sorry, grace leads to gratitude, which leads to generosity. And that's kind of what we're going to look at. And we're starting by kind of tracing God's generous heart. And what we're going to do is notice that God's heartfelt desire for us is extremely generous. And he's generous uh, in this particular way in this passage that he wants to free us from living in anxiety. That's his goal. That's his desire. That's his heartbeat. And so would you go with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 through 34, and we're going to look at that together. Um, There's a lot of ways you can get to this passage. It'll be behind me, projected. It's in your bulletin, paper, Bible, phone, whatever works. All right, Matthew chapter 6. Verses 24 through 34. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow's thrones the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Friends, these are the words of God, and they are more precious than gold, even much fine gold. And they're sweeter than honey, even honey straight from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? 
Father, um, I do pray that you'd help us to savor your words. Um, they're hard words in some ways, and they're comforting words in other ways. And I pray that you um, would help us to open wide our ears and our hearts to take them in. I pray that you, Jesus, would be in the midst of your words, that you, the word made flesh, would dwell by your spirit with us, and you would make yourself more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. Help us to encounter you, Jesus, even now. In your name, amen. So several of you know this, but um, this past December, my dad passed away. Um, it wasn't unexpected. He was 81 years old, and uh, he had cancer that was diagnosed in spring of 2022. But um, the reason I'm sharing this story is I got the chance to go up to, my, my, uh, to where he was living at the time and where my mom still lives, Columbus, Ohio. That's where I'm from. And I went up there multiple times this past fall and winter um, to go and be with him in those last few months. And each visit, I was flooded with just lots of memories um, of being with him and, and growing up, not only because I was trying to take in the fact that my dad was dying, but also because they still lived in my childhood home where I grew up. I was uh, not born there, but pretty close. And so um, anyway, one particular visit, the first visit even was just rubbed that reality into my face because I stayed in my childhood bedroom and uh, in the bottom bunk of a bunk bed. <laughs> so, so any sort of thought that I had that I'm a mature adult completely withered. Um, and I was like 16, 12, 8, 4. Um, I just kind of was not even sure what, how old I was at certain points in that visit. And I felt this kind of riptide of thoughts and feelings, uh, what it felt like to be little again, um, and just kind of that feeling of, of, of feeling small and being small again, and dealing with that little boy, the little boy parts of who I am, and what those little boy parts kind of do. Um, and so it's out of those thoughts that I wanted to introduce you to a favorite uh, childhood uh, book character. And I would argue that he's a dark horse, like he's not your lead candidate for um, favorite hero in a book. You've probably not heard of him, if you have, great, that'll help. But his name is Mr. Toad and the Wind in the Willows. Uh, for the unfamiliar, The Wind in the Willows was written by a guy named Kenneth Graham in 1908. And it is very, very British. It's British Empire, height of British Empire. So the book has to feature these woodland creatures, like think about river rats and moles and badgers and toads who live like aristocratic gentlemen. It's amazing. <laughs> So there they are going on leisurely walks, which they call rambles. There they are, river boating, which is called punting. And then they have these houses with smoking rooms and smoking jackets and parlors. And of course, they, can, they kind of wear knickers and uh, pocket watches, and they have starched shirts and tweed jackets. And this is a great children's book, isn't it? Anyway, into this absurdity enters my personal favorite character, Mr. Toad. Mr. Toad's this young, rich, reckless gentleman toad with a strange and uncontrollable passion. But to kind of get at that passion, I would love to introduce you uh, to it through a scene that, uh, that is, I think Kenneth Graham does great with. So here we go. There they are, toad, mole, then moley, rat named ratty. They're all walking along the side of the road. They just had a picnic, and they're sort of going alongside the road with 
Mr. Toad's newest favorite toy that he's bought. It's a canary yellow car caravan wagon. It's an extravagant purchase. And they have just picnicked and they're walking alongside the road and out of nowhere, this metallic poop, poop sound comes out of a motor car horn, remember 1908? And the friends are um, all of a sudden covered head to toe in a trail of dust from the road. And actually the car swerves and they're knocked into a ditch and there goes the wagon and there goes the donkey or the horse. And all of a sudden everything's upended. And then uh, we see you know, rats hopping mad, moles trying to help right the car to make sure everyone's okay. But then there's Toad. And here's how Kenneth Graham describes Toad's state of being. Toad sat straight down in the middle of the dusty road. His legs stretched before him. And he stared fixedly in the direction of the disappearing motor car. He breathed short. His face was, wore a placid, satisfied expression. And at intervals, he faintly murmured, poop, poop. Glorious, stirring sight, murmured Toad, never offering to move. <laughs> the poetry of motion, the real way to travel, the only way to travel, here today and next week tomorrow. Villages skipped, towns, cities jumped, always somebody else's horizon. Oh, bliss, oh, poop, poop, oh, my, oh, my. And to think I never knew, went on the Toad in his dreamy monotone. All those wasted years that lie behind me, I never knew, never even dreamt, but now. But now that I know, I know now what I fully realize. Oh, what a flowery track lies spread before me henceforth. What dust clouds shall I spring up behind me as I speed on my reckless way? What carts all fling carelessly into the ditch in the wake of my magnificent onset? Horrid little carts, common carts, canary-colored carts. That's like, well, how great is that? Uh, what a great monologue. Anyway, in this moment, Toad kind of has, is taken possession over. He's possessed by a passion. His new craze for automobiles. And this, of course, leads uh, to a downward spiral. Co Toad purchases and crashes seven different cars. Three times he ends up in the hospital. This is a children's book. Isn't it amazing? Anyway... And, and then some of you are kind of going, time out, time out. Like, uh, Hope Church, this guy telling a story about his dad dying and a cartoon frog dressed in a British formal wear and a three-piece suit, that's how you're starting your generosity campaign? Come on, what are you thinking? And, there, and maybe some of you are going, where in the world is this sermon going? Where, why am I here in this building? Or maybe you're going, I want Aaron Engel back. <laughs> it's okay. But I, want, I kind of am talking about um, all of these things because I want to get at those little heart-level parts of ourselves. That, that part of me that pops out of me sometimes. And that I felt kind of I was swimming in in all these visits home to see my childhood home and my family. And maybe you feel like this too of these holidays. And it makes me think of Mr. Toad because Mr. Toad is wearing on the outside what so I, I so often feel on the inside, especially that I can kind of get carried away with something, right? I can get carried away and can't help but feeling how frustrated I can be and frustrating I am to others when these little parts start to take possession of me. And I start to hurt others and myself and those I love. And really, Mr. Toad is a caricature, a funny mirror image of our hearts. 
simultaneously so sympathetic, right? And at the same time, so ridiculous. And his adventures are sort of these exaggerations of how what we can treasure, how what we treasure can suddenly take hold of us and steer our lives in in such different directions. So in our passage this morning, I'm gonna argue that Jesus is directly addressing these little parts of our hearts, little boy and little girl inside of us. And Jesus is pointing out how what we treasure can steer our lives out of control or into harm and even into tire-spinning anxiety. And so how do we get gentle with those parts of our hearts? I think we go to ask three questions that Jesus is asking. And here are the three questions. And they're our outline, by the way. First, Jesus asks us, what is anxiety about? Second, he asks, what are we anxious about? And then third, what calms our anxiety? Or how can we begin to get free from anxiety? We're going to look at verse 24 first and see what is anxiety about. I don't think I need to make the case that about anxiety, right? I think um, anxiety affects almost everyone in this room. It affects me. And also, it, and it really isn't um, something that is in the rear view for us. It's on the rise societally. And though we can kind of know it when we feel it, I think, for the most part, and sometimes we can identify it in others when we see it, I think it helps to kind of have a common definition. So let me give you a definition that I'm borrowing heavily. Um, And here's the definition of anxiety, just so we're all on the same terms. Anxiety is an emotional response to a real or perceived future threat. Anxiety is a concern today about something that may happen tomorrow. Anxiety is a desire to control the uncontrollable, know the unknowable, and manage the unmanageable. And all of this can feel like a panicky kind of dread. And so as we kind of hold up that definition of anxiety, and then we try to also hold up Matthew chapter six and the words that Jesus says there, I need to be very, very careful. I need to be careful because anxiety is like every other way of describing the human condition. It's many things at one time. It's physical, right? Anxiety is a repeated biological, biochemical reaction in the brain. And at the same time, anxiety is also emotional. It is a feeling that you can identify on a feelings wheel. And then even more so, uh, anxiety is, is spiritual. And maybe that's the way we haven't thought about anxiety as a society very much. And so Jesus kind of directs us in verses 24 and 25. And he says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. It's an interesting connection between those two verses. And Jesus is suggesting that our anxiety has something to do with what we worship or who we serve. And Jesus is telling us that we get anxious whenever we do whatever it takes, whatever we serve, what he calls mammon. And mammon is just a sort of his language, the Aramaic that he was speaking that day. It's just a way of saying capitalized M of money 
possessions or wealth. We might say capital M money or capital P paycheck or uh, capital H house, right? That's sort of what he's doing there. And here's what's tricky. More often than not, money is just a means to another end, right? Very few of us in this room would say that money is my ultimate thing. But so many more of us would actually say that money gets me to my ultimate thing. And my ultimate, whether my ultimate thing is success or friends or acceptance or a certain look that I can portray to the world or a status that I can say I'm part of, fun, it can be a spouse, it can be freedom, it can be respect, or it can even just be better sleep. Money promises to give these things to us. And the point is this, money so often isn't actually about money, right? (laughs) And that's the reason why Jesus talks about money so much, and that's why we have to take a pause and talk about it too at Hope. Because money is an indicator of light that tells how our trust in God is doing. So money is an indicator of light that tells how our trust in God is doing. And so when our trust is low and blinking, think about that dashboard light in your car. When our, when our trust is low or blinking, we can so quickly sacrifice our values and even ourselves for whatever money promises us. By getting it or saving it or spending it, money gives us all these things that it promises. It promises to get us what we want. And what we want becomes a must-have. And then all of a sudden, like a false god, what we promise to work for, like, you know, money, all of a sudden, um, what's supposed to work for us, we start to work for. And, there's, and, it, or, and it feels like an or else. And so we see the process of, of how what we, can be, can, what we want can become our master. It can master us. And I really think we've got to go back to Mr. Toad's downward spiral. I mean, that's just really essential. And so we're going to look at that again. And again, it's a great way, a comic version of our inner selves and and kind of the way that he lies his way through a friend's intervention. They put him under house arrest and somehow he escapes. And while he's still on the run, Mr. Toad, on foot, hears the all too familiar sound, poop, poop, of an approaching motor car. And then according to Kenneth Graham, Toad has to hold onto the leg of a table in a nearby inn to conceal his overmastering emotion. And he tells himself there cannot be any harm in just looking at it. And so Toad wanders over to someone else's car. And when he's there, he sees the keys in the ignition and he kind of goes, hmm, I wonder, I wonder if this sort of car starts easily. He kind of leans in, and next thing a moment, and I can only quote Kenneth Graham because it's so good. Next moment, hardly knowing how it came about, he found he had a hold of the handle and was turning it. Remember 1908? As the familiar sound broke forth, the old passion seized on Toad and completely mastered him, body and soul. As if in a dream, he found himself somehow seated in the driver's seat. As if in a dream, he pulled the lever and swung the car around the yard, out through the archway, and as if in a dream, All sense of right and wrong, all fear of obvious consequences seemed temporarily suspended. He increased his pace, and as the car devoured the street and leapt forth onto the high road through the open country, he was only conscious that he was towed once more. Towed at the best, towed at the brightest, towed the terror, towed the traffic queller, lord of the lone trail, before whom all must give way or be smitten into nothingness and everlasting night. 
What an amazing children's book. Anyway, and the next scene is Mr. Deepen Better. Mr. Toad is sentenced to 20 years in prison because he gets caught by a cop for stealing a vehicle, recklessly endangering the population, and resisting arrest. I mean, it doesn't get better. When in the willows. Okay, but perhaps Mr. Toad's down, downward spiral into Grand Theft Auto, maybe that doesn't feel like our lives. Maybe that feels a little far-fetched. And really what I love about this passage that we're looking at is he, Jesus brings us closer to what anxiety feels like and how we live in it in verses 25 through 34. And that's going to be our next point in our outline. Look, we, why, what are we anxious actually about? What are we anxious about? Verse 25 along with verse 31 gives us a big picture look at what we're typically anxious about. What are we typically anxious about? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. We're anxious about the things that we need. These are needs, like water, food, clothes, drink, okay, and lifespan. And those things that we need are also actually outside of our direct control. And that's what makes us anxious, right? Look, all these things require us to work hard, but they require more than our hard work in order to work out. And so verses 26 through 34 neatly unpack where life feels most out of control for us, right? Food and drink, verse 26. Clothes, verses 28 through 30. How long we'll live, verse 27. And what the future holds, verse 34. And briefly, Jesus decides to begin his description of what we're most anxious about by zeroing in on all things birds. Why does he look at birds? Because birds don't have a way of producing future food. They can't farm, right? They can't sow or reap or gather or put things in barns. Yet God feeds them and the birds eat day after day. And most of us in, our, in this room don't have anxiety about where the next meal is coming from. Some of us do, but most of us don't. Most of us can't speak like the birds would have, would have spoken if they could speak. They don't, we don't have an anxiety for the next, next meal or like what Jesus' first century audience would have felt. They probably were living from meal to meal. Our anxiety more often looks like, um, where will our next meal come from one to five years from now? It looks like our plan. Will, will I keep this job? Will I be able to live near the South End, preferably in a house? Will I have a well-paying job that I don't hate? Or will my, my child fail to launch and live in my basement uh, with a non-STEM degree in psychology and hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt? Just hypothetically, that's something that we worry about. Anyway, uh, it's an issue of security, right? We fear failure. Whether that failure is defined as food stamps or moving back in to a parent's basement or just doing something that we don't like every day. And so we crave safety, we crave the assurance that, um, that money or income can bring to an uncontrollable world. We want just that measure of control that we think it provides. But the birds of the air teach us what we already know. We can't control our world that way. We can't control bad bosses. 
We can't control, we can't stop expensive healthcare or a rising interest rate. We can't turn around a slowing job market. And then Jesus continues to, to peck away at this message. Jesus moves to another common natural scene. This in this case, glorious wildflowers to describe our anxiety about clothing. And once again, like food, our anxiety about clothing is not for our next set of clothes. Again, his original audience, that very well might have been an issue. They didn't have more than one or two pairs of clothes. But for us, when we think about clothing, it's much more about what clothing represents. And what does clothing represent? It represents beauty or social status. And so we fear being undesirable, dismissed as lame, underdressed for success, overdressed for the party, wearing too little or too much of whatever when we go out to eat, or when we enter church. And we crave significance. How do I, how, we crave, how, how do I look on the outside? And can that look on the outside make up for the case I'm trying to make on the inside? The case that I belong. I belong with those people in that room. But like the birds, the lilies, and the grass of the field teach us what we already know. We can't control what other people think of us. We can't fundamentally change our body shape. Or we can't make people like us. And here's a, here's a harder truth. The harder we try, the worse it gets. And so verses 27 and 34 address the anxiety behind our worry about security and significance. So he just keeps hammering this point home. We're anxious about a future that is uncontrollable and uncertain. We can't add a single guaranteed hour to our lives, verse 27, and despite our best efforts, our best performance today, we absolutely cannot change the circumstances of tomorrow, verse 34. And that's really hard news for us to hear in a high-achieving city like Charlotte. He's not saying don't plan. He's not saying don't work hard. But he is saying um, he's resisting something that we've, taught, we've been taught from a young age, right? I don't know if you've heard of the marshmallow test. We've all passed this to some degree. You can have one marshmallow now, or if you wait, you can have two marshmallows. And most of us are able to resist the temptation of the one marshmallow and have the two marshmallows. And so we live in a future orientation, but I love the way that Blaise Pascal puts it. He tells on us, and he tells on us 400 years ago because he tells on himself, we never actually live, but we only hope to live since we're always planning on how to be happy. It's inevitable that we should never be happy. We're never actually happy because we're always planning to be happy. In other words, we're so often busy counting on and worrying about the future that we don't actually live and delight and enjoy the present. And really, the present today, right now, is the only time that we can actually experience God. Look, God is in control of, he looks after, he knows, he sees, he works in all times and all places. But the only time and place that we can experience God is in the present, right now. That's where we, we delight and enjoy and relate to him. 
And this kind of present tense reorientation leads us to our third and much briefer point, okay? The one we've all been waiting for, how do, what, what calms our anxieties? You see, Jesus has been agonizing specific, and you've probably been squirming in your seat about how specific he's been, about how this world works. And he knows it firsthand. That's the beauty of this. He's trying to prove that he gets us. He gets it. He understands firsthand. And we know that, right? You see, God came and entered this world, and so he intimately understands how sparrows fall to the earth, dead. That lilies get trampled or get used for fuel for fires. And that homes and lives and jobs are, can be stolen with just one explosive act of violence. After all, God came and he lived among us. The poorest of conditions, most wanting of food and drink and clothing. And in, the, in his tomorrow that he lived under the shadow of was a cross, crucifixion. And so he, Jesus, is going to give us real-world advice for this real-world situation and our real anxiety. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, Jesus knows that we actually seek first all these things. We seek security, we seek significance, we seek certainty, and we're looking for them in unpredictable things, like food and drink and clothing. And we're looking for significance and security in unpredictable things like tomorrow, as if tomorrow will be the same as today. And so he suggests that we start to recalibrate. We start to stop short that thinking and move into a full tilt heart change. What would it look like to pray like he taught us just verses earlier? Pray to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it look like to ask yourself, what do I want right now that only God can provide and not that thing or that person? But Jesus knows that we can't change our own heart. He knows that we can't um, trust more without him and his help. And so he's come down to earth and he's come to die for us so that we might be his beloved child. And that's really the gospel, isn't it? 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, Jesus stripped himself of his security and his safety, of his significance and his status. Jesus left the right hand of God. He left heaven and he came to earth and he lived in the poorest conditions. He lived in physical poverty. He didn't know when his, where his next drink or food or piece of clothing would come from. In fact, he died, stripped further down to nakedness on the cross. Why? All so that in Jesus and by Jesus, we could experience the great exchange. That we can rest and rejoice in his status with God. That when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. That we're beloved, a child like Jesus. And so here's what I want to end. I just want to end with like two very practical ways of how do you live out of that belovedness? How do you claim it? How do you live with that when in the midst of a really chaotic world? How do we live into the gospel? And out big picture, it lo it's looked like me getting smaller 
and letting God get bigger. So to that end, here are two things that can feel really young that I think really matter. All right, first thing, stop listening to the rushing river of your anxieties and start speaking to the individual waves. Stop listening to the rushing river of your anxieties and stop speaking to the individual waves. What do I mean by that? To move our hearts, sometimes we have to speak to our hearts. We have to interrupt the flow of anxiety. And this is just in the Psalms, right? The psalmist is always saying, oh, my soul. He's speaking to himself. And so we cry out, heart, oh, little one, you're of more value than where you work. Heart, my future doesn't depend on that person. It depends on God. Heart, I'm secure, significant, and taken care of in this life in Jesus. He said it's finished and he meant it. Heart, I don't have to be God. And I get to experience his forgiveness when I think I'm God. Second way to be a child on purpose. (laughs) Lift your head up and look around. Lift your head up and look around. Jesus is inviting us to be poets and photographers and painters, foodies and musicians and just appreciators of life, right? He's, he's saying, you can have so much of what I have. Just stop and stare like a little child. There's so much line and color in this world. God has infused it with so much texture and taste. Have you thought about that with your food even? He's, he's, there's so much movement and light that he's given all around us. What does it look like to take that in like a child, like a poet? And so I want to end with, with one poet, Wendell Berry, and how he puts this. Just a really real picture of what he does with his anxiety. Not a prescription, but, a, but maybe just an identification. This, uh, he's with us in this. When despair for the world grows in me, And I wake in the night at the least sound and fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lay down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light for a time, I rest in the grace of the world, world, and I'm free. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with the forethought of grief. I rest in the grace of the world and free. Christ came and he has set us free. Let's pray. Father, thank you that truth. Help us to rest in it. By your spirit, would you help turn the eyes of our hearts to you? Help us to be in this moment. Help us to trust you for the next moment. That's scary for a lot of us. I pray that you would be with our fears and you calm them. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.